Thank you, Meredith. That was a little tribute to the 10 years of Sydney Ideas, which has been Meredith, Hall, Meredith Hall's great contribution to this university over the last decade of putting on these events, um, providing a forum for all sorts of conversations and discussions, uh, which otherwise wouldn't have happened. Um, and it is amazing over that 10 years how the sort of appetite for these discussions has really grown in Sydney. Um, I mean, you see it, you see it here, you see it in the bookshops, you see it now in the in the big sort of big <coughs> events, at the, the TED events and the Opera House events and the IQ debates and so on. I mean, 10 years ago, none, next to none of that was happening. So it's a really interesting sort of sign of how people, I think, one of the subjects we'll probably discuss today, how people are looking elsewhere for more richness in their intellectual diet and the conversations that they can be involved in. Um, I'm, my name is Julianne Schultz. I'm the editor of Griffith Review, which I've been editing for 13 years. So I get a three years head start on, on Meredith in, in this space. Um, it's a great uh, privilege to be able to come and have these conversations here at uh, the University of Sydney. And one of the things that Meredith does, has done so well is to always ensure that on any panel there needs to be a University of Sydney academic, which um, from my point of view means that I have to think harder about who it is that I'm going to commission to write um, and who I'm going to um, invite to panels. And tonight um, we have an interesting panel because we have three people who've written long pieces of reporting for this edition and Professor Thomas Mashmeyer who is our Sydney University person um, um, and head of the um, uh, Professor of Chemis Chemistry and founding director of the Australian Institute for Nanos Nanoscale Science and Technology um, and a very innovative scientist himself who will tell us a bit more about his work as we go along. My, my other guests are Cathy Marks. Cathy's um, a uh, journalist and writer who's um, written uh, a lot of, writes long complex pieces for me which I'm very grateful for because there's not many people who you can say go and do, a, do me a report on what's happening with sustainable energy in Australia and she'll come back having seen everyone in the field 10,000 words later with a really engaging and, and lively, lively report. She's done this a number of times for me now and most notably a few years ago she had the idea that she wanted to write about um, Indigenous um, relations in Tasmania and I said oh that's a really fraught field um, she went off to Tasmania and did it and then won a Walkley Award for that report so <laughs> she's, a, she's a very talented uh, very talented journalist and I'm very pleased to have her here this evening um, next is Tony Davis um, Tony Davis as, as it turns out is actually does have a Sydney University connection he's tutoring here at the moment so had I known that I could have uh, put your Sydney University hat on right. as well in the, uh, in the publicity around the event um, uh, Tony is a, uh, is a writer, journalist, creative writer, playwright um, and um, has been, I guess, made his name most notably um, in, uh, over his career as a writer about cars and manufacturing, automotives, automotive matters. Um, um, and so when we come to thinking about the future, the cars and, and the future of manufacturing are obviously very high on that list of subject matters. And hiding down the end is Paul Daly. Um, Paul is, a, uh, again, an author and, and journalist. Um, he wrote a beautiful little book a few years ago about Canberra, which was really uh, in that lovely series that the University of New South Wales Press did, which created a great deal of interest. Paul writes a lot about um, Indigenous issues, cultural issues, um, and in this case has written a fantastic piece about rural Australia and the automation of the bush, which actually in many ways drew on a lot of the research that was being done here um, at the University of Sydney. So please join with me in welcoming my panel.
the idea behind this edition was it was it was a sort of double act with the previous one, which was called Fixing the System. So imagining the future came after we tried to fix the system. Um, and um, what 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 I did is a collaboration with the Melbourne University Centre for Sustain Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, and I co-edited it with Brendan Gleeson, who's the professor there and professor of urban matters, really. Um, and what we were trying to do was to address what we felt was a real gap in, try, in, in trying to imagine the future, of trying to synthesise how, with all the mega trends that we know are around in terms of climate change and globalisation, urbanisation, automation, all the Asian words, um, how we could try and imagine what a future would be like to, as a precursor to trying to take some steps towards creating it. Um, the timing of this was quite good at one level because we like to celebrate <coughs> anniversaries that end with a zero. So it's the 500th anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia being written and the 150th anniversary of H.G. Wells' writing as well. So there was a sort of a, a, a good zero ending for, uh, for this marking the moment. Um, we sort of knew that there would be an election this year, but we didn't really anticipate that the election would be happening during the period of the of the camp during the period the campaign would be happening during the period um, of the the book being out. Um, and it really, I mean, I think in my mind has really thrown into very sharp relief how in this election campaign these really big issues are only being talked about in the most oblique terms. Um, rather than being centrally addressed. So we've got a little bit of innovation <coughs> talk and we've got plans and we've got references to education and so on. But really trying to grapple with what we know are going to be quite profound issues seems to me are not making it onto the, onto the main stage of, of the election discussion at precisely the moment in time when I think it should be. Um, so hopefully we might do a little bit of that this evening of amplifying some of those big issues. So I'd like to start by asking um, each of the three writers just to read a little bit from their pieces and then to, to sort of answer me a question of, from the knowledge that you have come to in researching these areas, how you expect the future might play out in these particular fields. So Paul, do you want to sure. go first? These cows are in no hurry. Each just meanders to the dairy all rolling hindquarters, swishing tails and loping heads, the blue, black and tan Rorschach inkblot ink patching of their hides, vivid against the washed-out Australian summer light. They stop as they please along the way, chew cud, moo, drop pats, moo again. They nudge the soft earth or a companion before snorting and continuing on up through the paddocks to the shed. It's milking time, just as it's always milking time in this dairy for about 360 Frisians, at Camden, where the outer orbit of Sydney gives way to the gentle rise that becomes the central highlands. These cows are not held to the human clock and milked according to the dairy farmer's traditionally antisocial, for both people and cows, timetable at the crack of dawn and again dusk. And they don't have to line up for hours either, cramped in a race, their udders bursting, in order for a dairy worker to quickly wash their teats, apply the suction cups, extract their milk, disinfect and send them on their way. Induced to wander to the dairy only by the irresistible promise of fresh, fresh pasture beyond, these animals are milked according to a pattern that largely meets their rhythm of grazing, watering, resting and lactating. They are not herded or cajoled in any way to head for the shed. There are no dogs snapping at stragglers' fetlocks. It's rare for people to bother them at all. Indeed, there's scarcely a person inside on this dairy farm situated in the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Elizabeth MacArthur Agricultural Institute. 
They know people about because once the cows reach the shed, they effectively milk themselves in what is the world's first robotic rotary milking dairy, the result of a collaboration between the Swedish dairy equipment pr producer Delaval, Dairy Australia and the University of Sydney's Faculty of Veterinary Science. The Camden property is host to the research and development prototype Future Dairy, which can automatically milk up to 90 cows an hour. Two commercial models of Future Dairy have been operating on large-scale Australian dairy farms, one in Tasmania and the other in Victoria, since 2012. About another 36 commercial farms in Australia employ the smaller-scale robotic technologies of other innovators to do what has hitherto be, been the back-breaking manual and later semi-automated work of dairy farmers for well over two centuries. While the name Future Dairy is freighted with prescience for an era yet to be reached, it is in fact already arriving and transforming the economies and lifestyles of the early adopters. Its positive implications for dairy production are no less profound for animal welfare and, of course, for the well-being of the dairy farmer, a person who almost invariably endures the unforgiving rigidities and relentless physical work of milking cows by virtue of birth <coughs> rather than choice. So that's the beginning anyway. And, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very compelling picture you paint of, these, uh, of, the, you know, of that automation. It's a long way away from the description, the, the news that we've been listening to about dairy farmers and the price that they've been getting. I mean, how do you sort of see that sort of automation playing out and changing sort of rural agricultural or agricultural life? Look, I, I think, you know, the future dairy was just the, the, it was the point at which I, I delved into this, really, but it, but it opened up um, a whole other world for me, really. I, um, I, was a, I was a novice before I started looking into this and, and what it opened up for me was a picture of a world in an Australia, a rural Australia in the not too distant future where besides you know, the, the cows milking themselves in some instances on, on some very large dairy farms, um, crops and eventually you know, broad, broad acreage agriculture will be, um, uh, will be the domain of, um, of robots effectively um, and there's so much amazing R&D going on into um, robotics at the moment, you know, not, not least um, in this very institution, that, um, that it does paint a picture of uh, a rural uh, Australia which is A, depleted of people, where B, there are much bigger properties, and C, um, robots and machines will do a great deal of the work. So this raises all sorts of other questions about community, of course, which I'm yeah. happy to go into later. We'll come to that. Okay, so that's, that's one automation. Now, Tony, you can tell yeah. us about the cars. Okay. Um, <coughs> it is no longer the stuff of science fiction. Self-driving cars will be on sale in just four years, and there is a broad consensus they will save energy and lives, liberate time for leisure and work, and transform the economy. Car makers are now aggressively headhunting computer geeks while big data and big computer are signing up automotive industry veterans so they can muscle in on what is widely perceived as the next massive leap in bankable technology. Apple management is clearly enthused about the idea of charging an iPhone premium for an autonomous iCar, Uber of saving the costs of drivers and Google of monopolising more of your time by pumping out ads, videos and restaurant recommendations as you are driven along by its maps. Traditional car makers, long geared to sell more and more every year, are doing the unthinkable. They are running the numbers over shared ownership models. 
governments are on board too. Barack Obama allocated US $4 billion in his 2017 budget for pilot programs in the hope of an economic windfall and a spectacular reduction in fatalities. As Professor Eric Switzgebel wrote in the LA Times in 2015, future generations might be amazed that we allowed music blasting 16-year-olds to pilot vehicles unsupervised at 65 miles per hour with a flick of the steering wheel, the difference between life and death. So what is Australia doing at this moment of transformation and unprecedented technological acceleration? It is walking away. In early 2016, the winding up of local car production by the three remaining volume manufacturers is a done deal. Ford will quit in a few months, um, Holden and Toyota next year. Once these companies become importers into Australia, there is only the tiniest chance full manufacture of vehicles will occur here again. Australia will have given up its position as one of about a dozen countries that can undertake every aspect of the design, engineering and manufacturing of cars. It will have said goodbye to what has been for decades its largest advanced manufacturing industry, one that accounted for up to $6 billion a year in exports before the global financial crisis. Um, with all evidence suggesting vast changes in the way cars are built, powered and owned, allowing the Australian automotive industry to close could be one of the greatest financial and strategic mistakes ever made in this country. In the words of former Australia, uh, Victorian Premier and automotive industry envoy Steve Brax, Australia is effectively reducing our skill base as a country. In the process, there is a risk of being shut out of a new industrial revolution. Your end bit, where you, you you posit some positive 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 possible solutions as well. Uh, not immediately, no. I think no. I was given a time limit, but there are advantages in not making cars as well, um, which are explained in the essay. Essentially, all policy shifts towards protecting local car makers, and uh, big cars have a higher perceived value than small cars. So we've always built big cars, and all the policy settings have been designed to make these more attractive financially to people. So we've built gas guzzlers for many years, and pretty well every country that builds cars has everything skewed towards protecting its own manufacturers at the cost of efficiency and other things. Um, so that's one of the advantages of not making cars, but we're sort of running down a huge skill base, and if we don't capitalise on this very shortly, we're just literally going to lose it. Okay. Cathy? Do you want to start with the energy situation and then we'll yes, get this moving? Yes, I'm just going to read that green to my piece, actually. Tucked away in a jade valley in the mist-shrouded hinterland, hinterland of northern New South Wales, the former cedar-logging village of Talgum seems an unlikely place for a revolution. The pace of life is unhurried, and when, when the electricity goes down, as it often does in this little community at the edge of the grid, people sigh and make do. Publican Paul McMahon keeps battery-powered lanterns behind the bar of the 90-year-old Talgum Hotel and tells, uh, and tells with a chuckle of locals playing pool during one blackout by the light of their mobile phones. Lately, though, patience has frayed. Blame it on one too many boiling days without aircon or the arrival of yet another eye-popping bill. Talgum's secluded location, an hour inland on winding back roads, has not sheltered it from the vertiginous price rises that have made Australia's electricity among the costliest on the planet. So when Andrew Price, a local businessman with a passion for sustainability, approached his neighbours in the quaint Northern Rivers Township, he found a receptive audience. Price proposed that Talgum's 120 households and handful of businesses produce their own energy, 100% renewable, 
And not just that, they should go further, he urged, and disconnect from the grid altogether. It was a bold idea, one that no community in Australia had attempted, despite growing disgruntlement with the major electricity companies. Just one low-voltage vol cable, frequently knocked out by storms, connects Talgum to the network that supplies southeastern Australia. Why not, why not cut the wire, suggested Price, put two fingers up at origin-owned essential energy, and maybe inspire other communities around Australia to follow suit. <coughs> not long ago, he might have been dismissed as a crank, but the once humdrum en energy game has changed. Thanks to dizzying technological advances and the plunging price of solar voltaics, photovoltaics, the landscape has been evolving so rapidly that almost anything seems possible. The century-old centralised model of generating power in gi gigantic coal-fired plants and delivering it through a vast web of poles and wires is giving way to small-scale localised distributed systems, with new, new suburbs planned off-grid and homes, businesses and communities producing their own electricity, often with rooftop solar panels. The windiest, sunniest continent on Earth, with plentiful, as yet mostly untapped resources of tidal, wave, geothermal and biomass energy, as well as ample cheap land, Australia is extraordinarily well-placed to grab a sizable portion of the trillions of dollars forecast to be invested in renewables globally over the coming years. It already leads the world in adoption of rooftop solar, more than 1.5 million households, or nearly one in five. Ross Garneau sees a promising future for Australia as a low-carbon superpower. Yet Australia is also one of the biggest coal producers, producers and exporters with, with one of the most heavily carbonised grids. And to date, there is little sign of that changing. Malcolm Turnbull has described coal as, as, quote, a very important part of the global energy mix and likely to remain that way for a very long time. Many are wondering if he will change direction uh, post an election, which he's expected to win later this year. That's, that was written some time ago. <laughs> um, will he draw a line under the futile political fights and unite with business and the community to take mean meaningful action to limit global warming? Or will he continue feeding Australia's addiction to what the Minerals Council called, quote, this amazing little black rock in its much-mocked advertising campaign? So when you started doing this research, were you surprised by the extent of activity that was happening? I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, all I knew was what I read and what I hear and see, which is that there is basically a, a lack of action or very um, weak action at federal level, which is, you know, frustrating to a lot of people, and that's, that, is, that is it, basically. When I started researching this piece, I was absolutely astonished to discover that there's stuff going on all over the place in Australia, at the sub-national level, at state level, uh, South Australia being a great example, the ACT, at city level with Sydney, Melbourne, nearly every city competing to be first one to go carbon neutral at the level of regional shire councils like Byron and Tweed. Um, they're all setting these really ambitious targets for, for you know, uh, using renewable energy, cutting emissions um, and, and, and so on. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite an nightmare. So, Thomas, that's a good place to bring you in because your research has very much been, or some of your research is, is very much in that sort of cutting edge space. Yeah. Um, and you, you face obstacles and opportunities. Um, <coughs> yeah, so, uh, so first of all, thanks to the three preceding speakers. I don't have, um, you know, I don't read from my own writing, so it's not quite as eloquent uh, as you just heard with um, cows going out in the morning sun. Um, Yes, I've, uh, I've, I've set up a number of um, companies that, that, that uh, are based on my research, and the research is really focused on trying to reduce 
our footprint as, as people on this planet and particularly reduce CO2 emissions. And uh, when one thinks about trying to do that, one hits a number of technical obstacles. Now, why are we you know, pushing out so much CO2, etc.? And one of the ones was just mentioned uh, before. The grid is a major problem. We have massive losses of electricity on the grid, so that's an, in, an inherent waste. But um, we also need to think about how to make the electricity uh, without CO2 emissions in the first place, and photovoltaics is a great opportunity uh, that we have in Australia. And, uh, and, and, so, so is, and, and the last part of the puzzle is batteries, which need to be introduced to uh, help stabilize the grid, and we've been active at Sydney University in that as well. And so in, in terms of what you've seen, I mean, with your various innovations over the years, I mean, are there unique challenges and opportunities that you see in Australia that... Yeah, I think Australia has got uh, interesting a number of unique challenges and opportunities which sort of feed into each other. So it has, as a pretty amazing challenge, the fact that it is the driest continent uh, that we have, um, and... Uh, and climate change will affect its population centres uh, disproportionately uh, strongly, especially to you know, uh, South Australia and the southern parts of Victoria. The north of Australia is most likely to get wetter, uh, but, but, but that's not where people live. So that's an issue, the water. The second one is um, soil. Australia has the oldest exposed surfaces in the world, other than Greenland, once the ice melts a bit. Um, and that means that our soils are very carbon poor, uh, and so that's an issue in terms of food security. So there are two or three particular issues. Um, opportunities are, of course, that we have a big continent, uh, a large surface area, a lot of sunshine, so it's prime target to be used for photovoltaic or for, you know, solar thermal kind of technology to, to produce uh, renewable energy, uh, and then you can use that to address the other problems, like the water shortages through desalination. We can also do very nice things to, uh, to remediate soil, and we're also working on that uh, at Sydney. So I might come back to you later and, and just ask you a little bit more about the obstacles in terms sure. of practical sense, in a, in a policy sense and a financing sense. But Tony and Cathy, um, I mean, you've both written about the sort of limits to the sort of policy level process, you know, Tony, you especially in terms of the, you know, the, the various inquiries and the resistance that, that there's been to, to change um, in, the, in the automotive manufacturing sector. I mean, do you think that there is a, uh, maybe you can give us some examples of that, but also if there are any um, lessons that can be learnt from that resistance to, to change at a, at a policy level? Well, I mean, the main lesson is that we don't have a car industry or, or soon well, that's won't. The that's the legacy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> partly because we haven't, we haven't moved. We've spent very little in investment. We've always been at a disadvantage because we've not owned our car manufacturing industry. So we've always been at the behest of foreign owners who are reluctant, for example, to let us export cars, which might take away their exports. Everyone's looking after their own markets, etc. Um, but it is so competitive now that if you are not going to invest at a sort of a national level, um, you're really not going to get ahead. Um, Mercedes-Benz, just on its cars, I've got the figure in there, I think it's something like 27 billion euros a year they are spending on R&D. Um, and that is to just keep ahead of the new players. That's A lot of it at the moment is going ahead of the, of the new players, which is um, Google and Apple uh, and Uber and Lyft and all these other people are spending billions and billions of dollars trying to get to the next stage. 
Um, we just aren't there. We seem to show no particular interest in um, any long-term coordinated response to this fast-changing thing. So until that happens, well, it's not until that happens because there's really a window now that if we don't do it now, we're completely behind. We've lost the, lost the fight. And I guess uh, the essay goes into a lot of the, perhaps some of the strategies we might look at, but also some of the reasons that we've missed out. And, and so, did you think it? Did you think it was always inevitable that this is where it would end up? Uh, it's very hard to be at the end of the world as a manufacturing power. But I mean, things are changing away from manufacturing in many ways. Anyway, at the moment, about ten percent of the value of a car is software. Um, it looks like in about ten years, about sixty percent of the value will be in software, and that's moving all the time. You don't need big factories to do this of course, but you need a head start and you need data and you need a lot of the things that we don't have and that uh, some of the foreign companies are much better positioned to take advantage of. Um, so uh, unless we sort of coordinate a big effort now using... So one of the things that we do have in this country is an extraordinary level of expertise across a whole lot of... There's very few countries in the world as small as ours that have done everything to get a car from a clean sheet of paper through to a finished manufactured product. So, and they've done it on very small budgets, and traditionally a lot of the, you know, the head of the entire design world of GM is an Australian, and that pattern has been followed quite a bit. Australians have been very good at getting a lot out of a little. Um, but those people will just all go overseas. If there's no work for them here, that's it, they've gone, we've lost them, and the next generation of people are not really going to be training to work in the Australian car industry because we won't really have one. Yeah. There's, there's an interesting parallel there with, with the solar, in, solar industry um, and that you, you've written about the University of New South Wales research and, 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 the, and the place that, that people educated through that, that university have played internationally. Yes, well, it's, um, it's not something that appears to be known very well, but um, this extraordinary explosion of um, solar photovoltaics, which I mentioned in my reading, um, Australia has played a really significant part in that um, because uh, much of the, uh, the technology, the solar cell technology, has come out of uh, one, one team um, of scientists at the University of New South Wales, uh, led by a, an amazing guy called Martin Green, um, who's a very sort of unassuming person but uh, extraordinarily talented. Uh, he's actually um, trained a lot of Chinese engineers who've gone back to China and um, must produce these solar panels, and that's what's brought down the cost so dramatically in recent years. You know, the cost has been falling by something like 10% a year, which is extraordinary. Um, but, you know, obviously um, there is the issue there that it's, the manufacturing has gone overseas, but perhaps, it, you know, perhaps it's unrealistic to expect that it could happen on that scale in Australia. And, you know, Martin Green's um, sort of viewpoint is, you know, that a lot of the value in that industry is in the installation and that, you know, there is plenty of scope for job creation here. If I could say something. Um, <clears throat> in Germany, as you can hear from my accent, I'm German. Um, in Germany, there has been something called the Energiewende, so the change to renewable energy. And the idea was that uh, Germany also is not entirely uh, without merit uh, making solar cells. Um, and uh, so they said, right, we're going to have uh, good policy settings that will encourage the take up of solar. And we're going to have a fantastic German solar industry and it's all going to be brilliant because we'll make the best, just the, the best cars, we make the best, the best solar panels. Uh, however, the dream 
uh, got a little bit of skew in that the policy settings worked. Everybody went for solar, and some, some, sometimes in Germany now there are days when the whole country has 75% renewable, um, but, uh, but the manufacturing went to China. Mm. So uh, Australia might, might have you know, helped to invent, uh, and then the manufacturing went to China. Germany, in a massive policy setting, helped to invest and also invent. And guess what? Manufacturing went to China. So it's not an Australian-only problem. It's, it's, it's a problem in a globalized economy that the money will go where the, where the most, you know, biggest buck can be made. And in manufacturing, that's just Asia at the moment, in mass manufacturing. It's not specifically what you've written about, but you've been observing Canberra and its ability to make changes and and, and implement policy in this sort of in, in these spaces over a long period. I mean, is there anything that you draw out from from what we've been talking about here? Um, look, I I get the strong sense. I don't sort of report on day-to-day -day politics anymore, but um, but as a as a pretty close observer, you know, and of the election campaign in particular at the moment, you know, we get a lot of we get a lot of reporting on an observation of politics, but not a whole lot of analysis of policy. And that's, I think, particularly, uh, the, it always annoys me, particularly in the area of climate change, that the public debate driven by the reporting around um, climate change is all about the politics of it. And, and I think often there's actually a very kind of scant understanding of the policy itself. So that, that kind of drives me nuts. And um, I think the same is probably true of these um, these big uh, manufacturing um, policy issues as well. And as for you know, for what I've written about and, and for what I had my head in for this for this essay, I just don't hear anything about that in the in the political policy realm at all. So the stuff that you wrote about was that all sort of new to you as you were doing it? Yeah, it was. Mm. And you know, that's the great joy of, mm. of what I do is mm. to is to be asked to go and find and, and write about something like this. But it was. Uh, it was a revelation for me, but it also got me thinking about all sorts of other things. And as you mentioned, you know, one of the things I, I do like to write about is, is history slash national identity. So this got me really thinking about... Um, That's about... why I asked you to write it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, yeah it, it really got me thinking about, you know, where it's going to leave the bush and our attachment to it. And... Um, you know, that's tied up with all sorts of other things too, like um, Anzac mythology. Um, so what happens when there's no more horses being used to, to, uh, to round up sheep and cattle and it's all being done by, um, uh, by machines that are invented here? Um, or you're yeah. not allowed to drive your own ute, which is the that's, other... That's yeah. right. You know. It's a problem in the bush. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, it was an absolute um, eye-opener for me, Julianne. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested, Thomas, to, to draw you in here a little bit about the sort of the scientific imagination. I mean, the first time I heard you speak was at a seminar last year um, that was held at Government House, and you were talking about turning brown coal into oil, mm. which was just like, was, this is the sort of alchemist magic. Um, um, I'm, I'm sort of interested in just hearing a little bit. I mean, this is what the others are talking about, is the end point of a process. Right. And I'm interested in the, in the start point of that process. Uh, so, so I guess the start point starts in a way, in terms of the, well, I guess there are two, two sort of area, aspects to scientific uh, innovation, scientific creativity. One is the quite romantic view that, you know, you walk down and uh, gaze into the distance and uh, suddenly a creative thought come, pops into your head, inspired by, you know, nature or by your muse. My wife is in the audience. Uh, <coughs> um, uh, but, but I guess 80% of it is, is, is more structured. 
And the way I see it is, as a citizen, as a member of the community, I, I see issues that, that, that concern me, uh, especially when they're unresolved issues. And then I step down to the next step to say, well, why are these issues issues? Why are they still unresolved? And then I look at that, analyze it with my training, in this case, a scientist and engineer. And, uh, and, and then I take a step further and say, well, I sort of analyze now what's the, what's the thing that holds it back. Uh, how can I come up with the real reason? So I will go to the deep fundamental science to find out where, what, what is it that doesn't you know, allow us to move forward. Obviously, I'm not talking about societal problems, but some sort of material problem. Um, and then um, we just ask some good questions in that space, in that very pure fundamental scientific space. By definition, I do pure science nobody's done before because they obviously hadn't asked the questions, otherwise we would have solved the problem. And that gets me published in Science and Nature and all the fancy papers, so that's good. But then once I have sorted that out, I, because I'm at a spot that I arrived at from the beginning, I can slot that in into each level, going back up that chain. And finally, I end up with a solution that the world wants. And that has led to six companies that I started up and created more than 200 jobs in the process, uh, which are sustained jobs, not just sort of uh, an app to buy a better pizza. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and that, that, that is, I think, the way, the way which uh, scientists, engineers uh, can make a real uh, contribution. So that inter intersection then, I mean, which is the thing that the Prime Minister spends a lot of time talking about, the, intervention, the, the intersection between the innovation and the implementation, the activation, the turning it into a business. Mm. Um, obviously there are issues here of scale and the depths of capital and the resistance at a policy level. Yeah, um, so I, I, think, I think Australia shouldn't necessarily see itself as reinventing its manufacturing sector as such for mass manufacturing. I think that's not going to be competitive in a global world. Capitalism strives for consolidation and, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, I think Australia, you know, people should realise we are representing of the top 50 universities, 10%. So a country with 24 million people has 10% of the top 50 universities. So we have an incredibly high skills base. So I see Australia as an innovation centre, as a design centre, and I guess the car industry might go that direction as well. They're designing things for general GM, I think, uh, uh, on a worldwide basis. Um, and, and I think then, then, then we are in a good shape. Uh, in terms of raising money, um, I, in my efforts here, it's been difficult in part because more larger investors are very comfortable with uh, reasonably low-risk projects uh, and make good money on those, especially during the mining boom and the construction boom and the you know, whatever real estate boom. Um, and so the appetite for risk isn't there and also uh, a feeling of nation building isn't really there. It's more about you know, how, you know, how can I make a quick buck here rather than having long-term strategic investment because it's good for the nation and my hip pocket in the long term. So the latest company I set up last year in batteries has got money from the UK. In the UK they have a special tax scheme that allows uh, certain areas uh, of activity to be to be treated in a way that uh, eliminates a lot of the risk for investors and, uh, and everybody's happy, they're happy they've got good projects, we are happy we got the money. Um, the National Innovation Statement is trying to 
do something like that, but at a much, much more timid scale. So whereas Australians are really not timid at all on the sports field, I do find that they're somewhat timid when it comes to technology, investment, and, and, and a really good look at the future. And I think that is something we need to change and need to get our leaders to change and actually talk about these things rather than sort of, you know, uh, uh, side issues during the election. So to the others, I mean, is that something that you came across when you were talking to, interviewing the people that you were, you were doing for these, these reports? That sort of experience of resistance? Um, one of the things I came across was that <coughs> while Australia and um, a number of the universities, and, and particularly this one, um, are at the forefront of R&D for you know, some amazing um, robotic um, equipment to, to, um, to serve the rural sector, there is uh, not a great take-up yet. There's a, there's a, it's not exactly a resistance, but there's a, um, a scepticism of it um, in, you know, amongst some, some farmers. And I guess when you look at what's happening to the dairy industry at the moment, you look at um, dairy farmers paying a you know, dollar or whatever it is to, to uh, produce 50 cents worth of milk, it's very, very difficult to encourage them to invest uh, whatever the massive capital outlay is going to be in, in, into um, robotic equipment that's, that's going to allow their cows to milk themselves, <coughs> even if it means that it will no longer, you know, take, take four people to run their dairy farm, but, but one. So I think, I mean, eventually the, the economies of scale and, and um, the common sense will, will play out there. And there is also a shortage of labour in, in, um, in rural, a, a shortage of unskilled labour in, in rural Australia that will, um, that will play into the decision making too. A lot of, lot of smart people um, around doing really interesting things, but if it's not coordinated and it's not pushed and it's not invested in, it's not really moving forward. Um, and the vested interests that want to build wider roads and more of them and things like that seem to always have the upper hand when it comes to getting the investment. I mean, what are we, how many tens of billions of dollars are we spending on West Connects? Where, um, just to give an example of the sort of driverless car revolution. The software and the incredibly intricate 3D maps will allow cars to drive autonomously about a metre apart, front to back and side to side. That could have the effect of increasing road capacity by four to six times. You then start integrating that with public transport systems so that people have pre-booked or are being dropped off by autonomous cars to public transport hubs, etc. Um, these roads that we're building may well be um, complete white elephants in as little as 20 years, but there seems to be no interest in developing that sort of infrastructure and working out what we might be able to do. It's very much about uh, big cars, basically. We're still in love with big cars, and, and all the policies seem to support that. There's no real penalty on engine capacity or weight or anything like that. There's very little incentive to have an alternative energy vehicle except fashion, that's the thing driving uh, Teslas at the moment. But there's very little actual economic reason to buy one that has been offered by the government. So uh, until we have sort of big picture policy decisions, all the smarts that we've got at a lower level are really not gonna, not gonna make a big difference. So one of the things you, you wrote about was that, was that the, um, the adoption of the sort of 
from what we're seeing in, in rural mining areas, you know, the automated transport of, of, of ore and so on, um, of, of, trans, of, of imagining that translated into the, into the normal distribution processes in cities and between cities. Yeah, I mean, interstate trucks, for example, there's no particular reason they need a driver, or it would be quite easy to automate them compared with the incredible complexities of having an automated car in the city, which is full of traffic and people reverse parking and pedestrians and all that sort of thing. So I think we'll see that reasonably quickly. And with such um, huge distances between our capitals, I mean, it sort of makes sense. But we've run down rail and other things, so um, I don't know that there's any particular willingness to start funding. I mean, it's going to take a lot of infrastructure. No one has gone to this next election suggesting that should be one of our priorities, any more than fast trains or the other things that everyone seems to agree that we need, but no one is prepared to stick their hand up for. Yeah, it's, it is a bit chilling. It was actually interesting last night on Q&A, one of the people from Penrith who asked um, Bill Shorten about um, an automated, I mean, she didn't say automated, but effectively what, what you could imagine was an automated bus line that was running from Penrith to Parramatta. And he sort of studiously took his notes and said, oh, I haven't thought about that, I'll go away and have a think about it. But, <laughs> but it seems to me it's very much in the mainstream of what, what you're talking about here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It is all possible now. It's really a willingness to put in the infrastructure and there are enormous trials happening around the world. Mm. Um, you know, and a lot of people think that in about 20 years your insurance company will not let you drive your car simply because you'd be too big at an insurance risk. Um, so <laughs> this is what I was saying about not being able to drive your use. Sure. You know, because yeah. Australians are also, in terms of national identity and things, they're quite attached to their cars yeah. and they may lose that ability to drive them. Can I, can I just ask, Tony, if you don't mind, to, to, what sort of implications is this going to have for car ownership? I mean, are we all still going to want to own a car that we can't actually drive? Or well, will, will it change the model of, of, um, of how we invest in... It has in, to. I mean, yeah. the average car spends 94% of the time sitting still. Mm. Uh, and GM, for example, um, has just invested half a billion dollars in Lyft, which is the Uber competitor. Um, it will, particularly in urban areas, I think... Look, a lot of people think... Australians will still want to own their car. They still like owning things <coughs> and publishing them and all that sort of stuff. But if you can't drive it, it is sort of, it's just a, <laughs> a utensil, isn't it? Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plans out. But certainly everyone who's working on this area is talking about the shared ownership models. Yeah. Um, so at least some cars driving around to be used by whoever's around. So it's a, software, it's a software model, essentially. Sure, yeah. But, yeah, I just wanted to make the point that uh, vested interests have always pushed technology back. Uh, vested interests are protecting their income, are protecting their market share, etc. And we have had new technologies appearing, so what's the mechanism? The mechanism that pushes vested interest back is uh, self-interest in the sense that a national government uh, or a number of national governments would have seen a crisis, and that crisis usually was as a war crisis, First World War, Second World War, Cold War, etc. And then large amounts of government dollars were freed up to do things like develop the internal combustion engine really well, to develop microwave technology really well, to develop aeroplanes very, very quickly from bits that just sort of flew a meter or two to being able to fly bombing missions and, and, and these sorts of things. Equally, NASA is a product of the Cold War era and Silicon Valley is a product of NASA. And all the things we're using now have been sponsored by governments. Now, how were they able to overcome you know, the vested interest of the Pony Express, let's say, uh, uh, with wireless technology? Um, it's, it's because 
it was his response to a crisis. And what we need to do is, uh, is also to frame the debate of what's going on right now in the world as a crisis. And it's a crisis of the environment. It's a crisis of the environment in China in terms of pollution. It's a crisis of the world in terms of resource scarcity and in terms of climate change. And with that sort of, knowledge, uh, with that sort of approach, we can start to think about, well, what do we need to tackle that crisis? And then we can go and subsidize effectively uh, uh, new technologies coming to the market, as all the technologies we are using on a day-to-day -day basis have been subsidized by the military-industrial complex over the decades. Because so then price is no issue. And so then you can go against the vested interest because if for a long enough period of time price is no issue, you're okay, you can break through. So, Cathy, in terms of your, your inquiries into the sort of energy sector, I mean, what lessons do you draw out of that? I mean, the Canberra example is quite a good one um, um, of trying to work against the price signals, in a sense. Against the... With the price signals that have been given by the regulators and others. Yeah, I mean, the ACT um, is doing some pretty amazing things um, in the energy space. <coughs> and I think it's really, it's a, it's a combination of things. I mean, firstly, you know, there's, there's no heavy industry in the ACT, you know, there's no coal-fired generators, so it's kind of easier. It's a small, it's a relatively small place uh, with a, you know, relatively affluent, uh, well-educated population who are, you know, receptive to this kind of thing. But you know what they have done really is um, they've you know they've had the political will to actually set some really ambitious goals in terms of um, you know I think they they, they want to be uh, they want the ACC to be run completely on renewable energy by 2025, which is pretty soon. Um, you know they're they're cutting their carbon emissions um, very um, radically. Um, and they've come up with some really innovative policy mechanisms, um, one of which is the way that they award contracts for um, large-scale solar and wind plants. Um, I mean, I won't go into the mechanics of that because it's a little bit sort of dry, but um, I think, you know, what, what, what Canberra shows is what can be achieved with a combination of a um, bit, of, bit of vision and imagination, um, you know, a bit of ambition in terms of goal-setting, you know, um, being creative in terms of the policy mechanisms um, and then just getting on with it. I, th I think it's, um, it, it's really interesting what you say. As a, as a resident of Canberra, my observation is, is that um, uh, Canberra, and having written about it too, uh, per capita, you know, we have the, one of the highest urban footprints in the world. We have the, a city for 340,000 people that stretches something like 80 kilometres end to end. So we have, we live in these great big houses on, on big blocks, um, but that, that said, it is a very progressive population. So I, I do sense living there that there is a, there, there, there is a real embrace of, of uh, renewables and, and the desire to do, to, to do what's right. Yeah, the big problem yeah. in Canberra is cars. Um, it's got the biggest, you know, the highest car, uh, the, the highest number of, car, of journeys made by car. Yeah. Cars actually being used rather than sitting in the garage. And, you know, it's, it's a... It's well, using car rather than using public transport. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it's crazy, too. It's a difficult place to walk, it, you know. Yeah, which, which, absolutely. Which yeah. is insane, given that it's such a beautiful place to walk. I mean, you can walk in the bush, but it's often very difficult to walk to the shops because there's no footpaths. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, you can't even walk down from Parliament, Parliament House. There's no. not, not a footpath that takes you from Parliament House down to Old Parliament it's House. A, it's a great... It's bizarre. It's a great flaw in the design, and, you know, I could, I could bang on endlessly about the design of Canberra, but I won't, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, in terms of the, um, 
Thomas, in terms of, you know, you were talking before about the crisis and the need for, you know, the, how crisis <coughs> triggers responses. Um, I mean, nobody wishes there to be, you know, a war. Nobody wishes there to be, you know, major catastrophes. Um, so I'm just wondering whether, what, what the push factors are, if, the pull, if we don't wish to have that sort of pull factor of right. a disaster. Right. Um, so, so, so the other, you know, going on with automation and the future of jobs, and the possibility of uh, people losing a number of um, you know, occupations in society, we need to create new jobs, new things. And uh, you know, if, if I talk crisis, well, uh, in every crisis there's an opportunity. And the opportunity is to come up with solutions which will hopefully avert and overcome uh, uh, the crisis. And, uh, and so the the positives here are that new economic activity can be started up. Um, you know, to one example is uh, I've, I've, I've set up a company that takes biomass waste from pulp and paper companies and makes it into a oil that can be made into chemicals or fuels, and that's now going global. Um, so that's going into, into North America and Scandinavia and multi-billion uh, dollars of investment. And that that helps to create new high-tech jobs. So from that development, you know, your Nike trainers or whatever, uh, they will be largely, five years from now, made from renewable material. Still the same kind of plastic, rubbery stuff, but the source, the carbon, is young carbon and not fossil carbon. So there are a lot of opportunities by, by, by searching for the uh, solutions. And so one of my drivers as academic is, is, is to create paths to the new economy, define, you know, uh, develop the new economy for, uh, for my students so that I can educate them and, uh, and, and, and you know, offer them jobs at the end. But what I hear you saying is that, is that, is that you're not getting this sort of take up at the level that you need really for this to be done locally. I mean, I just wonder what, what, what in the end, if you've got um, ready investors in Europe or in you know, Southeast Asia or in you know, the North America, what in the end is going to hold you or your students here doing this stuff? You know? Right, so, uh, so, so the policy settings in Australia at the moment are not very positive for anything renewable. Uh, I think there's still a legacy from the Abbott government and I think the current Turnbull government, even though uh, Mr. Turnbull had some views that were quite different to his actions right now. Maybe in time he will remember this view, those views. Um, uh, before, when, when Labour was in, I was involved with, the, uh, with, with helping to, to, to define a little bit what the carbon tax means and, and why it was a good thing. Um, the policy settings were quite, quite good and, and there was a lot of investment coming. Uh, and, then, and then political change just stopped, uh, stopped that investment from, uh, from materialising, including some large-scale solar, etc. Uh, in Germany, for the last three governments, um, there has been what's called a grand coalition, so the two main parties uh, form government, and so there has been investment certainty, and that has resulted in large investment decisions in the renewable sector. And I think what we need to have is policy certainty, because some of these investment horizons are, are, are 20, 25, 30 years, and nobody will come into the country and say, well, I'm going to spend my money on this because there's a lot of sunshine if the policy settings aren't right. So that's really where the uh, total lack of leadership uh, uh, is, is, is hurting Australia and the future generations of Australia a lot. Uh, however, it's easy to fix. 
It is very easy to fix. We know exactly what we need to do to turn that around. And hopefully, one of these days, there will be a political discussion that will actually touch those subjects. Does anyone else want to comment on Cathy? I just think it's really important to, um, you know, and this should be coming from right from the top, you know, to be talking about and educating about the amazing opportunities that lie in renewable energy, for instance, but also a lot of the other things we've been talking about tonight. Um, you know, uh, yes, we do need to kind of inject a sense of urgency into the debate. You know, that the, there is a sort of a crisis <coughs> unfolding that's intangible, but is still a crisis. Um, but there are some extraordinary opportunities for Australia, you know, in, in terms of the economy, jobs, and all sorts of other things um, that, that come along with that. And, you know, we, we don't really hear much of that. Australia has an amazing, as I said, intellectual capital. It's a great place. That's why we all like to live here. So it's easy to keep students and to have, you know, startups, etc., because it's a great place intellectually, it's a great place socially, uh, politically, it's stable, it's safe, it's clean. Um, but we are just lacking a little bit on the vision side of things. But, you know, uh, I think everybody has to do their bit. You coming here tonight is doing something. We sitting here is doing something. Uh, you buying the book is doing even more. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think it's just a continuous, a continuous effort of every individual trying to sort of, you know, turn this big tanker around, uh, uh, which would be slow, but once it's in the direction, it'll, it'll go there steadily and positively. I'm, I'm interested because the other three the, the other three are, uh, you've all worked as journalists and you've all faced the sort of existential crisis that is affecting journalism um, at the moment. Um, it struck me that with the pieces that each of you wrote, um, that there was actually nowhere else that you could have written them. You know, or maybe, Paul, you possibly, well, we got yours into The Guardian, but, you know, that, that there's not a, there's not a sort of an open discussion, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that there was a grand old days, but, but it just seems to me that the that shrinking of that public space mm. for that sort of reporting is actually a big part of the problem in terms of defining the, the situation. Just what are your thoughts about, you know, how you go about doing what you do? I mean... No, go ahead. No. I was just going to say that, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, you know. I mean, and just, I would just give the example of what I said at the start of the conversation, you know, which was how little I knew about what was actually going on in this space, despite being someone who reads a lot, you know, reads why they're interested in the subject. Um, so, um, you know, the reporting is really important, and obviously it's important to have the forums to, to you know, to run these kinds of, um, uh, you know, to have the space to run these kinds of ideas. Um, look, look my, my view is that publications like this and um, you know other other literary journals and other other journals where you can um, spend time if someone pays you to spend time to research whatever it may be and then write something hopefully eloquently and polished and then it goes through a rigorous production process and an editing process that is really the future of long-form journalism I mean there are some exceptions to that the New York Times still does it um, The Guardian the Guardian does it, um, but I think so many things have changed in um, in journalism with convergence. And one is that, um, or the really big one is, is that um, we are seeing the death of um, tenured journalism positions at the moment. Journalism is no longer the um, aspirational middle-class profession it once was. Wages are very low. Um, people are there's no no place for many people who are 
experienced. You are old as a journalist now once you're 40, which is, which is quite frightening. I, I think the future is, um, well, well, the crisis is now and the future is, is very grim. And I hate to say that, and I hate to say it to, to young journalists, but um, I, I think, um, I think there's, uh, the, it's a, in a pretty bad state at the moment. Tony, I was struck by your um, conversation we have with about your piece, which we were because one of the things that we do with Griffith Review, and we used to do it really successfully when, the, when, when there was more space in the papers, that, that we would basically get pieces syndicated in the newspapers, and so they'd be run. You know, we'd publish 25 pieces in an edition, and at its peak, we were probably getting 20 picked up in the major papers and being run all around the country. And for a while, that was actually quite a good revenue stream yeah, for us sure. as well, because we'd get paid and the authors would get paid, and it was all nice. And as the papers shrunk, um, they stopped. Well, they just ran out of space, um, and essentially. Money, of and too. well, they, yeah. They, yeah, the first they stopped paying, then they ran out of space and stopped running them all together. Um, and even though you know we could have, you know, we could say, oh well, we'll give it to you for free. We just haven't got the space to run this stuff. Um, so your example with the Fin Review was was a nice one because you obviously do a lot of writing for the Fin Review and have done over a long period of time. The two thousand word story is really your upper limit nowadays for so-called long form in something like the Fin Review or Fairfax newspaper. Mm. I had the opportunity to write eight and a half thousand words here. You can obviously go much more thoroughly into the pros, the cons, the, the issues, and you don't need the sugar hit that gets you a run in a very small newspaper mm. these days. You can actually um, spend a lot more time with it, which is great. Okay. Um, all right. So I'll start where I started an hour ago, and I'll just repeat everything I've said, and I'll look straight ahead. And uh, um, okay, I'll just quickly recap that to say that uh, I've written eight and a half thousand words in the Griffith Review. There is almost no other forum in Australia that will give a few writers the opportunity to do that in one issue. I can't think of another one, in fact. Um, and I think that's a terrific thing as a journalist, um, where. Um, space is shrinking, the diversity of stories is shrinking, basically everything's shrinking. If you get a few journalists together, there will be much um, slashing of wrists and general morbid talk, unfortunately, at the moment, because it is changing very, very quickly. Um, but the opportunity to look at things in great depth um, is great, and readers are appreciating it, which is why long form, I think, is actually bouncing back. It's one of the few forms of journalism that is being heavily supported and is doing well around the world. So. So a professional question, what, what do you, Thomas, for you, they've done the journalism thing, you can do the academic <laughs> university, what, what do you see as the particular place, you know, you've talked about the intellectual richness and the diversity and the, and the depth that there is in Australian universities, I mean, what steps do you think need to be taken to really make that really hit its, hit its right. potential? Right, so, so there was um, uh, a, a piece published uh, by the former chief scientist, uh, Ian Chubb, um, and I helped write that. There was a sort of uh, state of the nation of science in Australia report also looking to the future. And um, there are a couple of recommendations, I guess, that need to really be enacted upon. And, and, and one of the things is if one wants to really say, okay, you know, I've got my students, I've got my idea, you know, but now I want to do something about it, usually that's too risky because it, you know, if you're nine out of ten of those things fail uh, or even more. And so if I'm a mid-career academic or a young academic, and that's the kind of person who has the vision, the creativity, the energy, you know, to want to do something, you're penalized if you get it wrong. Uh, and statistically, nine out of 10 times you will. So we need to have mechanisms by which they're uh, 
uh, career is protected, they can take a couple of years out, as it were, uh, um, uh, called a paternity leave or maternity leave for the little company, um, to, to, to try and make that transition happen and that it is counted in terms of their career development, etc. That would unleash enormous amount of creative potential that is clearly present in our uh, universities and directed towards an impact kind of activity. Um, and then that can be supplemented by all sorts of incentives, whether they're university incentives or state or federal incentives, scholarships, fellowships, prizes, etc., special grants that allow, that allow for these sort of things to happen. Um, in addition, I think um, we need to have forums which uh, allow people to network. Academics you, you know, very often are very clever people, but not necessarily all that good socially, especially in the technical and engineering sciences. Um, and uh, and, and, and so, so, so they need to be coached, mentored, brought together with people who can maybe communicate a little bit better uh, and, and communicate to the financial community um, to make these things happen. Um, Success needs to be celebrated. Uh, I was in Israel recently, and um, Israel also doesn't have a large manufacturing industry, and what they have is under constant threat for reasons that we well know. So, but they equally to Australia have got a great uh, intellectual depth uh, and very, very uh, high achieving individuals and, and universities. They only got eight, but they're outstanding. And um, what they've decided to do as a nation is to create an export. And that's not the export of some mass manufactured good, their export is companies. So they're exporting companies as a business model for the nation. And on the NASDAQ, the third largest country in terms of absolute numbers of listings is Israel. That's a country of, I think, 8 million people or so. Uh, so it's US, Canada, Israel. Uh, and I think that is something that we, uh, that, that, that we should do as well. Um, and, uh, the, um, and, and Sydney University, together with uh, the government of uh, New South Wales, have participated now in what's called a landing pad in Tel Aviv uh, for these sorts of activities to learn uh, and how we can, how we can do that, uh, that sort of thing here. Uh, success needs to be celebrated, and, uh, and, and people really you know, have a, need to have a focus of wanting to succeed rather than wanting to avoid, avoid to fail. That's a really big difference. ask you each one last question before we open up for questions from the floor. I'm very <coughs> much conscious that, you know, an, that election campaigns are periods that change societies, you know, that people make choices and they have to think about things which they may not otherwise think about. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that this election campaign is, as I said at the beginning, sort of squibbing the, squibbing the big issues. Um, and I wonder, and it's, it's a, this is an awful thing to ask of journalists because, of course, they don't have political opinions. Um, but um, I'm just wondering whether each of you and Thomas could give me a, you know, a, a few sentences of what an election campaign that was really engaged with what the future, imagining the future, might look and sound like. Um, well, it wouldn't look and sound like this one. Um, it, would, um, it would be a campaign where we had a genuine argument and battle of ideas, where we were talking about um, policy. One example, fascinating to hear Tony talking about uh, the roads of the 21st century. You know, we're talking about them all the time, but what does it mean? Are we going to end up with, with white elephants? You know, let, let's, talk about, let's talk about that. Let's, um, let's have a meaningful discussion about why the major parties um, continue to, to argue around um, climate change and, and mitigation. That's what I would hope for. Um, but I'm not holding out for it. You know. no, okay. 
Well, if I were to stick to cars and to talk straight ahead so that people can hear me, um, the thing you're going to be telling people are the things they don't want to hear, obviously. Um, the way to win the election is to have uh, tax breaks for new cars, shiny new cars. The way to actually make a meaningful difference is to put people on a longer horizon and tell them that the real cost of them owning and running a car has to be reflected in the cost of fuel and other things, all of which are subsidised in various ways. Um, so I don't think anyone's going to be game enough to say things like that. Um, so, but maybe some of the billions spent um, subsidising other things could be put into more incentives to drive vehicles other than you know, large-engined conventional cars. Um, well, in the space that I've written about um, in terms of renewable energy and climate change, which is obviously a, a non-issue in this election, Campaign, but imagine a campaign where the major parties were competing to say how fast they could decarbonise the economy, mm -hmm. um, and you know it wouldn't be based on sort of airy fairy stuff. You know there are plenty of really serious evidence-based studies that have been done that lay out specific step-by-step -step pathways on how you do this. You know, um, addressing the different sectors of uh, energy and buildings and transport and so on, it's doable. And, you know, is it really such a hard sell? You know, it's about, you know, who, who can be better at saving the planet? Yes, I would like, um, I guess, to, to campaign to actually try and educate the electorate on some of the major issues and, and do that quite dispassionately. Uh, their climate issues, their health issues, their demographic issues, etc. And then weave that into a vision. I mean, imagine that. Uh, election, election campaign with a vision or two, um, and that could be a vision of yeah, how to decarbonize the economy, how to actually uh, uh, deal with, uh, with increasing health costs, um, and be honest about that. Be honest about the problem and come up with a vision of how to solve them. It may not be the right vision, but at least give us something. Um, that's what I would like. Thank you. Can I chip in what, what, what one of the feedbacks that we got? I, I, this has been my party trick question at my panel, so I've been pick, picking the answers from people um, at various other seminars that we've been doing. Um, and one of the... Um, Brendan Gleeson, who's my co-editor <coughs> for this edition, who uh, was in a panel we did in Canberra last week, and he said what I thought was a really smart thing, and he said that what he would have liked to see was a, a discussion about a new settlement, in a sense, about what Australia would look like in the way that occurred after the Second World War, when there was a recognition that things needed to profoundly change. And the, you know, the conversation happened about what would a, a modern Australia look like. And I think that that's probably a pretty good starting, starting point for, for one of these conversations which would draw in the themes that you've all been talking about. The other thing which we haven't addressed tonight, though, and again, the research here at the University of Sydney, which has really been at the forefront of identifying this, the evidence is that within about 20 years, 40% of jobs as we know them won't be there anymore. That's going to prevent, present enormous social and organisational challenges, which, which haven't even been raised. I mean, we still hear a little bit about unemployment, but those really big profound reshapings, which, which we know will happen, um, we don't have on the agenda. So maybe we've done a little bit of putting it on the agenda this evening. Um, before we close up, we've probably got time for a, few, a couple of questions from the audience. So if people have got questions, um, Meredith will have a microphone to hand. And uh, Thank you, Eva Cox, and I've been sort of pushing for a whole lot of sort of social change type issues. 
Thank you for a very interesting panel, but actually one that I found quite depressing because it's actually quite... A lot of the views you're putting up are quite dystopian rather than utopian about the sort of problems that we're going to end up facing. Even if we do have self-milking cows, you know, what do we do about the whole society? And I think the point that, uh, that you brought up at the end is a really important one because it worries me that we talk about the future in terms of the technology. We talk about the future in terms of the way that it can change things. We don't talk about the sort of society that we want to achieve and how we use and harness the technology. How do we redistribute paid work? How do we redistribute the use of resources? What can we do to deal with the fact that if you take a look at what's happening at the moment, particularly in Europe, but it's echoes of it here, people are bored shitless, to put it mildly, with current governments, and there's a real push towards populism, which is actually picking up some of the nastier aspects of, try, of, of reactions to things like technology and various other things and climate debates and immigration and various other things. So I suppose I think if we're looking at imagining the future, I suppose what I'd like to sort of put out as a challenge, which I'd like to sort of see much more on, which is what sort of society we're going to create. And I mean, I've been trying to get this discussion going for a while and what I've found is people don't want to talk about it because they're deeply pessimistic. And what happens tonight, I think, is another reason why it sort of reinforces the pessimism. People say when you try and run focus groups, I heard sort of feedback from somebody, we don't want to talk about the 10 years time, can we talk about two years? Because people don't have the future vision. And my concern at the moment is, unless we start getting some positive future visions, we're going to end up with a very dystopian future. Well, if I... Um, so I said, for example, in terms of... I hear what you're saying, uh, and, and it's difficult to, to, you know, to answer some of, those, some of those issues. But in terms of it being uh, negative, um, my technology has just created lots of jobs, lots of you know, investment. Uh, we can go renewable, we can go clean, we can go green. Australian technology having global impact. So I don't think that's necessarily a, a, negative, uh, a negative or a dystopian view. Um, the challenges uh, that, are, that are faced by increasing technology on a social level, I think that's, 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 that's where the action is. Um, and that's a pretty, pretty, tough, pretty tough question to, to answer. Just a, a side comment. Um, I think in Europe people are getting more and more populist because the set of, 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 of of questions that need to be answered, it's getting more and more complex. And I always find, looking at history, uh, like history, uh, the more complex the set of questions a society is facing, inversely, the more simple the answer people would like to, uh, would like to have. And that is, not, that is not necessarily the intellectuals I'm talking about, I'm talking about the people that you find in the street. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's why the right wing especially gets such, uh, such mileage at the moment in, 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 uh, in, in Europe. Dystopian thing. I, I, I take your point that it has been a bit down, and we're trying to. I'm trying to be up. But one of the, one of the strengths I think in, in of, of a lot of the writing in this collection is that by illustrating examples of where stuff is happening that is good, it actually gives you something to hang on to. I mean, I think each of the pieces that, that these people have written actually you feel quite sort of positive that there is a way forward, that it's not all a horrible negative morass. So I think you're right, but, but it's a matter of getting those sort of details and the stories out that actually give people something tangible to hold on to. Just to give one example, um, there are tens of thousands of people killed 
uh, in motor vehicle accidents, for example, and we have an opportunity to cut that perhaps by 99%, not just killed, obviously a huge number of people injured as well with associated health costs. Well, anyway, so, I mean, that is a positive, that we could make big changes in that area, for example, um, and we could also give new mobility to old people who are unable to drive, and a vehicle could go and could pick them up and take them where they want to know. They could have a social life that doesn't exist at the moment. There are, I mean, technology, if used wisely, could be a really, really good thing, and let's hope that, you know, we can achieve some of those things. Hello. My name's Anne Folland. I just, I guess I had a, a question for Tony, but also probably a comment, and I just wonder um, how we should be looking at population growth and um, apartments as opposed to houses and the fact that the younger generation are tending not to get their driver's licences and not have cars because they're living in high-rise close to where they're working. Um, perhaps if we could perhaps have a bit of a discussion around that area, that would be wonderful. Well, they would be a great beneficiary, obviously, of unpiloted little pods that drove around, ideally uh, powered by something that doesn't generate CO2. If you can live in a fairly close to the city apartment and you suddenly you don't need a garage, and similarly with houses, you know, it's amazing how much of the land space in the average house is taken over to this worshipped object that is the car. And um, obviously if we could um, use shared cars, suddenly you liberate a lot of land as well as everything else. But you also give people the opportunity to move quickly and to get to rail hubs and other things like that. So um, I'm not quite sure how that addresses the question, but essentially that the, people who are, the young people who are not getting their licences will be a great beneficiary of these um, hopefully driverless electric cars. Hmm. No, you have, to, you have to buy the book to do that. There's a whole bunch of stuff on housing and urbanisation. <laughs> that wasn't my brief. I was, I was doing that, so, yeah. <laughs> and, and indeed, the urban pieces lead into Tony's, so, you know, you're right on the, you're right on the money. <laughs> uh, look, I didn't think I'd be ever disagreeing with anything that Eva might say, but I have to on this occasion. It's, um, I think there's no shortage of visions of the sort of city we might dream we might live in one day. It's, it'd be the green city, it'd be high density, it'd have better public transport, not too high, but high enough that was sustainable in terms of the tests for, for good low carbon housing. Um, the, the, I guess the question I want to put to the panel is, it's not so much the dream about this better place, it's how do you get there, and especially the governance around that, and especially the politics around that. And around election time, it's not a bad time to talk about it. So the thing that stresses me out most is the concentration, the focus of the innovation notion on technology. And what about innovation in the whole of the governance system? How do you, how do you get that um, political dialogue that one of you might have mentioned, that they do get honest in an in a election sort of arrangement? instead of being so captured by the media shots or the, the gotcha moment. So are there some good innovations around the world for governance processes that we, we can cause some change in, in election cycles and stuff like that? If I, I could answer that. Uh, 
Maybe, so I'm running the Energy Research Storage Network at Sydney Uni, and um, that's about uh, batteries, energy storage to facilitate microgrids, to facilitate uh, distributed uh, uh, electricity generation, etc. And that group is not just a group of technologists, engineers and scientists. We've got uh, social scientists there, we've got lawyers, we've got uh, architects, the whole spectrum. And, um, and it's basically exactly trying to do what you're, what you're suggesting. How do you anticipate these developments? How do you create good governance around them? Who owns what? Who is responsible for what? Who benefits? Who shares the benefit, etc.? So in these meetings, we discuss maybe 10% the science and the engineering. And the people in those meetings basically say, yep, we know you guys are going to fix it. She'll be right. But what about, once it's fixed, how are we going to use it? So, so, so Sydney University is one of the thought leaders in this process, and we, we also invite people from, uh, from government regulatory agencies, etc., to be part of that, so that they can think about regulation and governance before the technology hits the road, as it were. And uh, that has a very strong interaction with society, and uh, uh, I think that's a good thing. Can I just say something? Because I think it's, um, it's sort of, it goes back to our previous issue of fixing the system, system edition. And one of the things that I thought was really, really striking when, with the pieces that came in for that collection was really looking at the sort of processes of governance and public policy making and, and so on, and looking at where the, where the tripwires were. <clears throat> and the, the thing that I've taken out from that, um, there are a couple, but, but one of the things that I've really taken out from it is, is the need to actually be able to have a bolder conversation, and this is at a macro level, um, about the electoral system. I mean, it seems to me that what we've, what we've observed over the last little while in, in this country has been a breakdown of the system as we've, as we've known it. You know, the, the intense partisanship in terms of the electoral process, but then you have electorates which are knife, knife hair's breadth. You know, it's 50 votes, 100 votes. You can't, you can't pit them apart. So you've got a sort of population which is essentially moving to the middle and you've got a polarised political discourse because the, the electoral system is one which actually encourages that polarisation <coughs> breaking into two, two parties essentially, which is not happening, which people are not happy with. So, I mean, the single takeout that I, I've come around to with that, and it's, it's a model which has been adopted in, in many countries, is to actually move to a system of multi-party, multi-member multi electorates. Um, where you can have, I mean, in my electorate, I live in, in the Prime Minister's electorate, you know, if I don't want to vote for him, that's it, you know, I'm, I'm on, the, on the other half. Um, so if you have a multi-party electorate, I mean, what you start to see, and you've seen it in Germany, you've seen it in New Zealand and various other places, you, you get a move to the middle, which is, more ro which is a more robust um, political system. And it, it just seems to me that at a really f structural, fundamental level, um, that that old notion about proportional representation, which when I was studying political science was the sort of geeky boys, you know, were all committed to that because they could see the perfect science of it, um, that it's actually moved now into a sort of popular um, space where it actually addresses a whole lot of things which we haven't actually named as being a part of that sort of um, bifurcated political system. So that would be my chip into that part of the conversation. Okay. Oh, one more question and then we can go. Okay. And it's a bit of a follow-on from what you were saying. I mean, I appreciate your time and all your thoughts. The, uh, 
some would say that technology that we're looking forward to enjoying in the future should have already been here had it not been held back. Uh, I think you commented on that, uh, Tony, on vested interests have, have strangled Yeah, I'm not technology. into conspiracy theories so much as just the fact that, um, you know, people who have a, a big stake in oil or whatever will just keep pushing that and lobby and all that sort of stuff, yeah. I wasn't implying that there was a conspiracy theory there, but... Nonetheless, but in a, in a day when we see a, a, a higher degree of uh, legal governmental scrutiny of what was formerly private information, <clears throat> reductions in the fi uh, financial viability of nonprofit groups, the uh, increased economic stress on objective media outlets and journalism, and uh, increased pressure on speci special interest groups to, for our policymakers to, to keep things just as they are, an overwhelming political focus on self-preservation rather than public good, how can we stimulate, rekindle those democratic fires that were once burning, and this young lady commented on it, is how do we rekindle that fire where the apathy that we see so rampant now becomes astonishingly vibrant uh, involved is there is there is there a tie-in at some point where technology is going to tear down the berlin wall and we're going to have a voice is the 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 current duopoly going to be strangled by many internet voices is is that the future well, um, we talked about journalism before, and I don't think, in terms of all that depressing scenario you've just put out, I don't think the current 24-hour news cycle is particularly helpful to any long-term or difficult decision-making. Um, so um, that is another problem, I think, that needs to be addressed as well, that uh, we need... Um, well, I think the journalism model at the moment is broken and it's, it's turning into something else. We need to wait to see where it goes. But at the moment, I don't think we're going to get any long-term policy decisions from people working in a 24-hour news cycle. It's really about damage repair and sugar hits. So, um, I have two young boys. Uh, well, not so young anymore. Uh, 17 and 23, but anyway. Um, and, uh, well, close, close, close. Now, what were their names again? Um, anyway, so... Um, be that as it may, uh, they, uh, I th they're actually pretty positive, and they're positive about engaging uh, in society, and uh, they don't get their main news from the mainstream news. Uh, social media seems to be ruling their day. Um, movements in their age group and around their age group, political movements, come and go, pop up, and, 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 and there's a great dynamism that's, that's not really visible to us, uh, uh, you know, even though I'm, uh, you know, things are happening and I don't quite understand what's happening, but uh, I think they are, uh, I think we, sh we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't think that, um, that because the old media, the old ways of doing things, means that uh, the younger generation is disengaged and the democratic fires aren't burning. I think they're burning very strongly, and in the Arab Spring we saw that uh, somewhat, uh, and that obviously you know, was uh, extinguished to some degree, but I think that is just a beginning of a pattern that is going to go uh, and roll, roll, roll across the world. 
Um, so I'm quite positive about uh, the democratic fires burning and lighting up. Final question. Oh, I just wanted to speak to a point that you kind of made earlier, which um, we kind of skipped over, which was that you said that nobody wants war. I think it's really important to be honest about there are industries that are built on the propagation of war, and it's simply not true that everybody doesn't want war. I mean, and the more we, we need to discuss that these vested interest groups, and I think it's very important to be honest, particularly with the young people who are vibrant and engaged and interested that they don't get feel disempowered by the power imbalance that does exist on the planet. And it takes people, young people, a long time to live through a lot to realise <laughs> that their idealism is continually getting shut down by the vested interest groups and where the balance of power. So it's very important, to, I think, to be honest about where the power is held and so that people can actually be re-energised and be strengthened internally to fight that fight and to keep being activists because we kind of, just to survive in a way that's in integrity nowadays, we need to be activists. And um, that's a difficult conversation to have, but I think that's where a lot of the apathy comes from and the despair and people kind of have this petrification because they don't know where to start and how to even move because they feel so disempowered. And I just wanted to offer that. Thank you very much. That's, that's, a, that's a very nice note on which to end. So thank you very much for that, and we will follow your lead. Um, don't lose the idealism. So thank you all very much for coming. I hope you found it interesting. Um, if you're keen to read more, books are for sale at the back, and we'll look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.